Welcome to the North Shore Fellowship Podcast, a place to explore the intersection of God's story with our lives. Welcome back. This is Chris. I'm sitting again with Jason and Heather. We thought today we'd go back to our sermon series and jump off of that and do something a little bit topical. And Jason has a topic for us today. What is that, Jason? How could these people be so stupid? And this is particularly notable in Solomon's life. This is the wisest man who ever lived. How could this guy be so foolish? How could this guy be so stupid? So today we want to take a look at that, see if we can kind of put some answers to that. Stupidity is kind of a harsh word, but I think it fits the occasion. We don't normally call people stupid, but but I see what you, what you where you're going. With Solomon, he had this supernatural wisdom given by God, at least to govern the people well. So you would think that that wisdom would extend to all areas of his life, and but you see him doing things that stupid really just is a good categorical word for what that appears to us. Maybe we should stop here and define stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I I would say it it bothers me because I would think that with all that he was given and being so wise, it would have been so fulfilling. So then why would he need to do something stupid? Like why would he need a lot of wives or why would he desire all of the riches when he had this amazing wisdom and he was loved by God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to put put words on his stupidity, he clearly violated Deuteronomy 17, which said that in Jason's word, the kings shouldn't have too many. Too much wealth, too much, too many weapons, too many wives. Yeah. So he accumulates all of these things in direct contradiction to Deuteronomy 17. And you just look at that and ask, how can somebody so wise be so dumb to do that? That reminds me of when I taught middle school, not because of the stupidity, but when I taught middle school, uh, I was an all-star out on the playground. I'd go out and play with the kids. I was a coach and whether we were playing soccer or basketball, I was, I was really, really at the peak of my powers and uh, could play in dress shoes and still beat my kids uh, at, at recess. Um, And I, and I think, um, That's what we have with Solomon. We have someone who's incredibly wise, but only by comparison. So I'm an amazing athlete if you compare me to sixth graders. But if you compare me to just other people my own age, I'm I'm not special at all. And if you compare me to the the greatest players, I'm I'm quite pitiful. And in the same way, Solomon is fantastic, but only if you if you compare him to the rest of us. If you compare him to God's infinite wisdom that's completely pure, completely devoid of sin we're on a different playing field altogether. And it's like comparing me to Michael Jordan. So uh, I think it's probably helpful. You know, we normally think of Solomon as someone who's really, really wise, but it's helpful for us to also remember the sin component that's there for all of us. So we have to wrestle not just with Solomon's stupidity or Rehoboam's stupidity or Jeroboam's stupidity. We're invited to look at this text as a window into our own stupidity. That's really good. That's a good illustration that I will keep in mind, especially thinking of you playing what in high heels on the on the playground. Now, I, now I've got that dress picture shoes. in my head. Dress shoes, dress shoes. Yeah, <laughs> but you can picture high oh, heels. Oh, men's dress shoes. Sorry about that. 
There we go. <laughs> I thought it was a competition or something. You were like trying to get down to their level and you could beat them even wearing It was just a best heels. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I would have lost in high heels, actually. I think I, I think everyone would have lost if I if I wore high heels. <laughs> so to bring it back, we're being a little tongue in cheek with saying that Solomon was stupid. Uh, he did some dumb things, but he's the wisest person that ever lived, according to Scripture. And yet he was susceptible to these acts of stupidity. So so much more are we susceptible to a lot of the same things. So, as we look at the text, there's some influences, there's some kind of categorical uh, influences, patterns that uh, you can read in the text that help us understand why or some of the heart-level motivation that goes beyond some of Solomon's choices. Many of our listeners will be familiar with uh, the language of Calvin, that the human heart is an idol factory, um, but those idols don't all look the same. It's not like a Model T factory where, where every idol that's churned out always looks the same. We're just a mix of motivations and influences. Uh, so our idols are, are in fact, uh, quite creative uh, in the way that they arise. So Solomon's idols come to him uh, partly because of his culture, right? There's certain expectations for kings in Solomon's day. And as he starts to slip into those patterns and pay less attention to what the word of God says, all of a sudden, well, I need I need more wives and international treaties that go with those wives, foreign wives, and uh, he's he's evaluating his circumstances based on social expectations rather than on what the Word of God says. So it doesn't make me any wiser than Solomon that I'm not accumulating a lot of horses because I don't live in the same culture and the same expectations, and they don't even mean the same thing. So you can't read into the text and just say, oh, that was stupid horses. You have to understand them as a war device, particularly getting them from Egypt where he was told not to. So he's, he's living in a particular time. He has a title of the king. He has expectations on him. And so his sin patterns, his stupidity is just going to look different than mine. Yeah. There are some other potential parallels. You know, horses required a lot of maintenance. Uh, and, you know, some of the things that we engage in an idolatry or accumulation wind up requiring a whole lot of maintenance. And there's some interesting parallels that we could chase down there. But yeah, generally speaking, I'm going to be um, susceptible to things that Solomon isn't, right? Um, because I'm a 21st century person with different social context than Solomon's social context. I'm not really tempted to make lots of international treaties and have wives as a result of that. That's not really something I've ever had to deal with. I'm not even sure you have the power to do that. Maybe if you had the power to do it, you would. You haven't seen my job description. Like uh, playing in high heels. Okay, I don't know if this is going to take us on the wrong path, but I do have a question as you all are helping us understand uh, his idolatry and also how it can relate to our, our own idolatry. In 1 Kings 11, verse 1, when it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women... And then it goes on to say, um, at the end of verse 2, Solomon clung to these in love. So we know from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 17 that he, the king was not supposed to have too many wives. We also know that wives were a way to uh, make peace treaties with other countries. So how do, how do I not infer too much from the text that he was either like he really loved these women or this really was all about peace? 
Yeah, I think the only clear evidence we have that this is at this point that this is a violation of scripture is Deuteronomy 17 that told the kings of Israel, don't do this. This is something that you're clearly not supposed to do. Um, and they're going to lead him into further disobedience. So we can kind of then after that disobedience, after he's building temples and allowing them facilitating the worship of foreign gods, um, you you can start to see work. You can start to work backwards into like, okay, in this particular moment, Solomon's heart is running after these women in a way that's competitive, right? So it's certainly possible for your heart to run after other things, uh, your vocation, your spouse, uh, in, in ways that actually uh, make sense or fit with uh, fidelity to Yahweh. You can love your country in ways that are f- that, that still leave you faithful to God. But you can also love your countries in ways that are idolatrous, uh, ways that cause you to overlook the, the social sins in a, in a particular setting. Uh, and uh, that would be an idolatrous relationship with your country, I think. Um, so in all these things, um, it, it's really a, a question of whether or not you are being faithful to God. And in this particular instance, Solomon is not being faithful to God. This is going to lead him into to unfaithfulness. I, I think this one in particular, Solomon having many wives, probably has I mean, at least two motivations going on. One is the treaties with other nations, and the other is all the wives and his heart going after them. And so there's there's two things at least going on. One is sort of a social pressure toward this sin, and another would be his own internal lust toward these women. So that makes sense what you're saying, Chris, is what Jason was also saying, that our idols are complex, that in that Solomon was not trusting God, perhaps, because he wasn't trusting God to bring peace. He made the peace treaties with wives. He also loved those wives. They became an idol to him in and of themselves. Yeah. And one of those two sin motivations might be more dominant in his life at that point, but they're both there in the text. And there's a, there's a place in Ephesians where it's talking about our sin. It's not talking about Solomon so much, uh, but everyone. And it says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. So right there, the course of this world gives us an idea that uh, there is, there's like a rut in the world that we tend to fall into. There's a way of the world that tends to lead us towards sin. There's a wisdom of the world that's not the wisdom of God. And then it goes on following the prince of the power of the air. So you have the world, you have the devil himself and, and demons and evil spirits that are trying to lure us into sin. If you've ever read, uh, C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, he does a great job of kind of giving a voice to what those evil spirits, those demons might say about us. And then it goes on, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, and then among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. So there we see that just like Solomon, we have desires of the flesh and in the mind, and we're pursuing those. So we've got these three things against us, and this is classically called the world, the flesh, and the devil. And in this order, it's different, but the world, the flesh, and the devil are three forces, uh, two outside of us and one inside of us, that are compelling us towards sin. And it doesn't mean it's not that when we sin, it isn't our responsibility, but you can kind of see that there's there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of weight towards sinning that 
we need to be able to overcome in our lives. Yeah, and we want to be careful not to give too much weight to one side or the other of that. One of those two sin patterns might have been more dominant for him at the time. We don't really know, but we do know that it is complex. The The things that lead us to sin are, are multiple and complex, and they interact with one another. And one of the places we can see this really clearly is in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll just read three verses. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, following the course of this world. So right there, following the course of this world says that there's something about this world, this fallen world, that there, there's these ruts that our wheels tend to fall into, if you will. That there's these patterns, these ways of being in the world, the wisdom of the world, that we tend to be just drawn toward and attracted to, and the logic of the world doesn't really fit with that of God. So we're following the course of this world. We're following the prince of the power of the air. That's a person. That's uh, that Satan himself, the devil, who would love to see us trip up. He'd love to make our lives difficult and lead us into sin. If you've ever read any part of C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, you've seen a creative voice given to these powers of the air that are influencing us all the time. And lastly, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. So there we see in the passions of our flesh, our mind, our body, that there's this more internal thing, this this thing that has less to do with the outside forces, even though, of course, they're related, where we see that we ourselves are, are tempted internally. We have our own drives, our own motivations that lead us into sin. So to summarize, this passage is saying that there's three things conspiring against us, the world, the flesh, and the devil, in a different order, but classically, this is the way we talk about it, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And these three things are conspiring against us. Well, I'd love to take some time and apply this to Solomon's life, but let's make this a two-part series. We'll wrap up here and we'll come back next time, and we'll look at how Solomon himself was influenced by the world, the flesh, the devil and what we can learn about that for our own lives. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we'll see you next week. 